in the world of design, we understand that, you know, designers, um, many of them want to take charge and, uh, and manage their own business affairs. So we developed two platforms, one where the designers who are represented by galleries and agencies and organisations could be presented, and then the NGV curated platform. Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm here with someone who has a very extensive career and history in uh, sculpture, design, art, Simone Lehman. She's now the Hugh Williamson Curator of Contemporary Design and Architecture at the National Gallery of Victoria and with Ewan McQuine. They have uh, are endeavouring to strengthen the voice of architecture in Melbourne. So welcome to the program. Thank you, Stephen. That was a long introduction because you've done a lot of work. You started it with sculpture mm. at the VCA. Yes. You then worked with leading contemporary jewellery maker and designer Susan Conn from Workshop 3000. And then you undertook a Master's of Industrial Design at RMIT University. So fairly broad but also fairly niche. Mm. <laughs> you could say that, yes. Um, well, all that has occurred, oh, should I say, over three decades. I think when I embarked on my study at the VCA in sculpture, I uh, had made a decision that I wanted to be an artist and I was adamant that I would pursue a professional practice where um, I was making a contribution and participating um, you know locally nationally internationally but I always had you know um, uh, this notion that I wanted to do more than present work in the gallery yeah Uh, the more I learned about how the contemporary world or the contemporary um, art world worked I realised that the ideas and the ambitions I had was really to, I guess, deploy ideas in the world at large. And I think being raised by an architect father, I was always extremely conscious of how design shapes the world and how the things that we design and deploy at scale and also in sort of limited, smaller quantities has this extraordinary effect of affecting us. So it shapes our behaviour, not only determines how we are and and what we do, but it has this incredible effect on our psycho-emotional world, but also how we think Mm. and the attitudes that we kind of display. So I think after committing a decade to the practice of making sculpture and exhibiting uh, within the gallery, I was I was ripe to uh, explore the world at large, and I met I met Susan Conn, and she literally rocked my world. You know, I never forget when she walked in uh, to an exhibition that I I was having, and uh, she walked in with this big black motorcycle jacket and big biker boots, and you know her long hair and big earrings. And she said to me, you know, do you want to come and work for me? And I didn't know what she did, but all I knew is that I wanted, I did, I found this woman so extraordinary and I thought, oh, you must be very interesting. And so look, that um, working with with Con or for Con in Workshop 3000, I guess, you know, I had the most extraordinary tutelage 
because uh, I was able to really indulge in my love of making and of craft but also I was introduced to designing that was informed by rich narrative and conceptual underpinnings and uh, and also there was you know she approaches all of her projects with great rigor mm. and I loved that rigorous um, critical approach to designing and making. So if we look at, you know, I've got quite a good memory and one of your earlier projects that you did, which was taking uh, the very simple bowling ball and turning <laughs> oh, them into yeah. bracelets, you know, things yeah. that had been thrown away. And mm. People love sport. I'm not a big fan, mm. but people do. Mm. But you took something that as simple as bowling balls and you dissected them and made bracelets and they were white yellow and red on the base of the color and obviously the white were more expensive because they were (laughs) rarer that look oh my goodness so that's bowling arm so that long time ago that project commenced in 1999 and Stephen, the story behind that, I, um, my grandparents lived in, um, in Preston, not far from the platypus cricket ball factory. And as a very young, young girl, my grandfather, we used to walk past the cricket ball factory and we'd go dumpster diving. And we used to get out the, the rings. And now these rings are actually the offcuts. They are the pre-consumer waste from making a two-piece cricket ball. So they're the that... The ring, the leather ring, is the waste that is shaved off to make the perfect half. And, of course, two halves are stitched together over mm. the cork ball. And um, and we used to go dumpster diving and uh, and I used to wear them as bangles. And uh, so literally reappropriating this waste. Mm. And I think, and I always wore them, and it wasn't until I think, you know, um, I was delivering a... A, um, a studio at Monash University for um, interior architecture students and we were looking at this whole world of pre-consumer waste. So all of the, 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 the material waste that industry produces um, that somehow just in, is invisible and it disappears and we were trying to design with waste in mind and uh, we also did an exercise where we had to go in search of this pre-consumer waste and really... Um, uh, I guess think of a use for it and with a view of a product you'd then commercialize and you would sell and, and uh, you sold them in and, thousands. And, yeah and so look I did the I did the exercise alongside the students to demonstrate that you know the, this is not a ludicrous idea this is something you can explore and of course but I wasn't prepared at the time at how they would take off and I never forget I was walking down Broadway in New York and I had, you know, I used to wear probably 20, 30, you know, on each arm and they looked really quite tribal. tribal. <laughs> yes. yes. And this um, and this gentleman walked up to me and in a very broad Australian accent said to me, you're wearing cricket ball waist. And I said, yes. And it just so happened that he worked for um, Kuzuko Smura, who was the protege of Isimiyaki and uh, and. Uh, 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 Kazuko Smura had a particular interest in waste, in rubbish. They called him Gommy Man, you know, which is rubbish man. And uh, so I found myself in a meeting with him and he basically said, uh, we like your bangles. Do you think you could sell them to us mm. for the Isimiyaki stores? 
So I came back to Australia and I went to Platypus and then I also went to the other cricket ball manufacturer and basically um, said to them, can I have all your waste? And at the time, you know, they were throwing it out and tons and tons and tons of it per year. So they were very happy to give it to me. But then when we, I commercialised the product and starting to started to sell um, thousands upon thousands of units because you get six mm. rings on a cylinder and uh, it was bowling arm and it was trademarked. It was, um, you know, I got a design registration. And, uh, and I think it was that time when the daughter of the CEO of one of the cricket ball factories came home and said, Dad, I, I want some bowling arm. And he said, sweetheart, you, you can go to the factory and you just get some of the way. She goes, no, 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 I want the proper bangles. And, um, and so, yes, so then uh, a value, a value was placed on the waste. So I guess the exercise that I was trying to demonstrate to the students was that, that this material waste has a value literally proved that exercise so then I started buying the waste so and and uh and I still to this day I still um I still produce the product but of course in 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 vastly more modest quantities because it it overtook my life but it it funded my design studio and my practice for probably two decades Mm, amazing um look when you uh you and you and you and you and McQuine joined the NGV yeah. a number of years ago. Seven years. Uh, eight years ago eight now. Goes. What was, you know, mm. it is a new position. It, it was. was. new for the gallery to actually employ curators yeah. with an interest in architecture and yeah. design. Yeah, What were you thinking you could bring to the table? Oh, um, well, look, when the opportunity presented itself, it was simply, oh, my dream job my dream job. You know, I'd spent probably a decade trying to forge a career in Milan as a designer, as a product designer. I had become very enamoured by the world of um, serial production. But also at the time, I was at odds with it. Because when you see behind the industry and, and, and you see the enormous um, uh, consumption of resources and then, you know, you, you, you start to think about um, end of life of products. I, I, I guess I became very critical of the industry that I was so desperately wanting to be a part of. And I think it was around 2007, 2008 when the GFC occurred and I never forget in one day I received about six, seven phone calls from all the manufacturers that I had been, you know, sort of developing prototypes with and they all said, Simon, now we need to put your projects on hold. And for me that was devastating because I thought, oh, my goodness, I've just spent a decade trying to work with the biggest names in the world of design and manufacturing and they're all telling me now that, you know, that's all, it's all over. So I came back to Australia, came back to Melbourne, thinking that my career was over. But really what that did was it sort of really um, forced me to look what was happening here at home, what was happening in Melbourne, and I uh, and I literally spent you know days just calling up manufacturers um, on the outskirts of Melbourne who were designing and manufacturing everything from buckets to brooms to um, you know humble everyday objects because I really wanted to see how I might be of value to many of these very small manufacturers to see if there was a role for me 
in helping them design proprietary product that could, I guess, um, find a home on the local market. And that's what you did? And that's what I did. And in the interim, um, I was invited to be a finalist in the um, Cecily and Colin Rigg Contemporary Design Award. And Which that was in 2009. Won. And then I, then I won it. And I guess that was a little dream come true, you know. And uh, I still remember it was the chair with the corseted back. Yeah, it was, and it was a chair that was made use of um, textile stillage or textile waste that had been generated from a company called Autofab, who uh, for decades and decades were the leading manufacturer of automotive textile fabrics in Australia, and they supplied GM Holden, um, Ford, Mitsubishi, and of course, um, uh, you know, they had this enormous stockpile archive, if you like, of every fabric they'd ever are indeed developed, put into production, and uh, and they basically said whatever you want. <laughs> and so I made a chair out of all of this stillage, and yes, and, I, and it won the award. And I guess that meant that I, uh, when Tony Elwood, um, our director at NGV, moved from um, from Brisbane down right. to Melbourne, um, I was really fortunate to have a meeting with him. And he was embarking on plans to, uh, you know, deliver Melbourne Now, which was a celebration of um, cultural production and the cultural works more broadly, not just simply in the visual arts, but across many, many creative disciplines in Melbourne. And and he said, you know, would would you be interested in curating the design component along with Ewan? And, um, And I just said, oh, I'd love to. Because upon returning to Australia, I was just blown away with what I was, you know, the, the, what had happened in the years that I'd been away. Um, I, I've reflected and I thought, if I had have known so much activity was happening in Melbourne and so much potential existed, I doubt whether I would have left so eagerly. I mm. think sometimes as a young creative... Things look greener. Things always look better on the other side of the world and and you're also I think motivated by you know fame and fortune because you see um your it's a tough gig. peers yeah kind of like reaping rewards elsewhere and I really didn't feel at the time that Melbourne had anything to yeah. offer me isn't that terrible I, of course feel quite differently today so if we jump to the design fair which was the inaugural design fair mm. and it was uh through the National Gallery of Victoria, it was a collaboration. Yeah, it was. It's it's an initiative of the NGV, and it was delivered in collaboration with the Melbourne Art Foundation, who deliver the highly successful Melbourne Art Fair. And the reasoning was, um, you know, NGV we deliver Melbourne Design Week for the state government, of course, supported by Creative Victoria. And over the past two years, due to COVID and the extended lockdowns we experienced in Melbourne, um, we weren't able to fulfil a lot of the programming for Design Week over 2020 and 2021. So with the modest amount of saving we made, we thought, how can we best put it to work? What What potential, both creative and economic, can we unlock with this saving? So it's been a conversation within the Department of Contemporary Design Architecture for many years about what would a design fair look like in this country. So 
how, Simone, <laughs> how do you, it was held in a warehouse in Abbotsford. It was, yeah. Um, I went, yeah. so I can actually yeah. say I've been. Um, how do you select designers for that show? Because, you know, oh. there were people like um, Sally Dan Cuthbert had, yes. a, a, had a wonderful mm. um uh, Stan, there were yeah. uh, Brody Neal from who's based in London now, yeah. who was represented. How do you choose, okay. and how do you reject? Oh, Stephen, it, well, there wasn't so much. There wasn't much rejecting going on. Uh, it, it. Look, we brought it together in breakneck speed. We, um, Ewan and I, pitched the idea to the NGV executive. Uh, we developed the model for the fair with the Melbourne Art Foundation. So by the time we actually then um, reached out to participating galleries, craft and design organisations, agencies, and then the designers, we were already mid-November. So it was literally you and an I drawing on our extensive network, um, understanding that we had about a 1,000 square metres of programmable space, so we needed to understand you know, what capacity we had, understanding that there were two components to the fair. And this is what we think is really innovative about the Melbourne Design Fair is that unlike many art fairs or most art fairs around the world um, uh, that represent, you know, the artists, the creatives, that, that they represent their business interests, there's often a barrier to entry for independent creatives. It's very, very hard to present your work at a, an art fair if, you, if you're not represented by a gallery. So in the world of design, we understand that, you know, designers, um, many of them want to take charge and, uh, and manage their own business affairs. So we developed two platforms, one where the designers who are represented by galleries and agencies and organisations could be presented and then the NGV curated platform, which um, had about 40 independent designers and makers from across the country. So I literally went through the Rolodex in my mind and designers who you and I have had the extraordinary pleasure of working with over recent years, designers whose work we have acquired for the collection. People like I sim- Trent Jansen. Yes, I simply got on the phone, Stephen, and I think I spent... I spent, I think, a week, um, you know, from um, morning to evening on the phone giving the pitch, this is what we're doing, would love you to be a part. Do you remember that cabinet you made two years ago? Did you ever sell it? And they'd say, "Uh, no. i say, where is it? Oh, my mother-in-law has it. Oh, does she own it? No. Well, do you think you'd like to put it in the design fair? So, Stephen... The work that you saw was the best work that we could assemble with given a very short amount of time and it included works that had been made in recent years but then many of the designers decided to make a new work. Because they so, didn't have much time. I mean, November no, to they worked March. very hard so over only, Christmas and it's summer. It's only a couple of months. Oh, look, it was... A, it was and I think that is why we are so proud of the first fair because it galvanised a community. The, the, the desire to see a fair of, of, of this significance um, uh, exist but with the extraordinary potential to grow and to become a, um, you know, a real catalyst for presenting, um, promoting and selling, you know, uh, uh, 
collectible contemporary design. It is about selling. It is. I know people don't like the word showcase. People don't like the word money, but um, and it's almost offensive. But in Uh, in a sense, for designers to continue in their paths, mm. they need to sell their work, and not everyone can be represented at a gallery. No, and it's not that easy, even if you are represented. No. Oh, look, I I agree, and look, I think. you're absolutely right. It, it it requires, for a practice to be sustainable or for a practice to be visible, for a design creative to, A, be able to make the work, but then for it to be shared, and by shared I mean sort of reach a, 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 a sort of a, a place where it can be exhibited, presented, acquired, um, and, and sort of... A, being acquired is really important because, you know, if you're acquired by a public collection, it means that your contribution to the field is being formally recognised, the work is studied, the work is looked after f- for, you know, in perpetuity, and um, and it's sort of presented alongside cultural production by extraordinary creatives from all around the world. So it's placed in a dialogue around, you know, design and art. And then if the work is acquired by a a sort of a a private collector, it's of equal significance because um, it it, what it does is is sustains and encourages creatives to continue on the path. And it is gruelling and any artist or designer, any creative would say it is gruelling to sustain practices unless you get those little wins along the way, which are sort of not only evidence that, that you know, your contributions are recognised, but let's face it, at the end of the day, it puts money in your pocket mm. so you can pay the bills and so that you can continue to do what you do. Um, on the money side, I mean, mm. I'd say one of the down the down things <laughs> recently was, you know, it was kind of discussed. The mm. the fair was discussed in monetary terms mm. by a journalist and that was kind of almost the only thing he mentioned. Yeah. And I was a bit disappointed because I thought, you know, we don't talk about art. We don't walk into an art fair and turn and when we see the price tag, whatever it is, mm. and go, Oh, that's ridiculous. When it comes to design, mm. whether it's furniture, objects, mm fabrics, textiles, anyway. Mm. And there's a price tag that is on the higher side mm. because it takes time and mm. considerable time and effort yep. and money. Why is it money becomes the focus when we don't do that anywhere else? Oh, uh, Look, it, it does occur in the art world, but, but when you want to be cynical, and it's often a dig... I would think at the at the at the artist at the practice or at the gallery, or talking about how prices could be inflated. So it's it's often contextualised. I think the article to which you're referring was there was no context. It wasn't contextualised, but also I think it drives to the heart of the problem, and that is. Um, for too long, I think um, in 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 this country we don't place the significance of design being cultural production so if you simply reduce um, a magnificent designed chair to something that you sit on and you don't interrogate it for its material ingenuity for the narrative that might be embedded within for the extraordinary display of innovation or 
the potential to unlock storytelling at a level that no other object can do. If you render the work simply as something that you sit on and equate that to a price tag, well, you miss the point completely. You miss the point. I mean, mean, you know, um, Mm. selling... Uh, furniture as art or design as art mm. is not new. I mean, mm. David Gill Gallery in London, in mm. Mayfair, Carpenters Workshop Gallery have been oh, yes. s- have been selling, uh, and retailing, showcasing uh, leading creatives yeah. for many, many years. Well, over ten years, you would not walk into mm. one of those showrooms and say, "You've got to be kidding." No, of, of course. Why is it and, we and have this this talk- attitude here? Oh. Yeah. Well, I just think because. The market for contemporary design of this nature is still very young in this, you know, here. Um, Look, I've been travelling for two decades going to Design Miami, um, you know, uh, whether you go to Saloni uh, in Milan, uh, you go to PAD in, in, you know, the UK, even Freeze now, these Big fairs have been showing and selling contemporary design as cultural production for a long time. Um, and there are those of us here that have been travelling, we've been observing this sort of the, the growing market for contemporary production. Um, but there hasn't been that conversation at home. Why? And, uh, well, look... You think it's too because it's too early, too young? No, no, no. I think there's a variety of factors. A um, commercial galleries in Australia have not been interested. I mean, Rosalind Oxley presented Mark Newson in the late eighties, and uh, and we all now go, wow, you know, yeah, two million look at dollars the price. For a talk about the price for a for a chaiselange, you know, probably the most. Um, you know, uh, uh, at what at auction several years ago, it reached or fetched the highest price ever paid for a, a contemporary um, piece of furniture. So I mean, I just, you know, the the commercial galleries here haven't invested interest. But to be fair, it's very hard. Also, if you are not participating in that world, it's very hard to know where to go to look for it. And what Melbourne Design Week has done over the past six years now has brought visibility to it because many of the designers and makers from around the country who do invest in that one-off, unique, limited edition production, they've been using Melbourne Design Week as an opportunity to... Um, self-organise exhibitions and present their work. So we've we've sort of, over the years, we've seen a greater visibility of the work. And so the Melbourne Design Fair was really in response to that, was like, well, how about we create, you know, one platform of which we can bring all of it under one roof. We can applaud and credit the design organisations um Uh, around Australia and the galleries that have been doing the heavy lifting but we can also I guess encourage and foster some greater porosity between all of those independent designer makers that may not be known yet by you know those who represent and sell so it's about trying to stimulate because we know that the work is here we know we have great talent here a lot of the talent here is exhibiting and participating in events overseas they haven't been able to do so in the last two years and so this was an opportunity to say well let's just 
do the event, let's let's trial, let's prototype. It was a proof of concept, um, but we're thrilled. You know, we hit sales targets. We hit our um, our objectives with audience attendance and ticket sales. And so um, that's so given ev- definitely it's given everybody, mm. not only at um, at NGV and Melbourne Art Foundation, but also with the support of government, we will be presenting it again. Um, so what would you say... You know, I mean, look, there were quite a lot of different things in mm. that fair. Um, you know, some of them obviously stronger than others. Yeah. But what would you say was a thread that perhaps ties a lot of the work together? What is it about Australian design yeah. that makes it so interesting? Ah, okay. Well, look, I was asked this question. It's a big question, no, no, and I, I don't was, expect. I was asked this question recently, and it's it's you know it's always. A little bit of a challenge because often you feel um, a a desire, not a desire, but a need to reduce everything to an aesthetic, to a look or to a style. But of course, uh, we can't do that because the um, sort of contemporary designer maker uh, community in in Australia is representative of, of people from many diverse backgrounds, but also diverse um, uh, trajectories. Whether that be education, whether that be expertise and knowledge of materials, um, even attitudes like positions in relationship mm. to craft and manufacturing, etc. So I would actually say that what we should be celebrating is the diversity, but also celebrating, I guess, the the unique approaches that we have fostered within our design community. So nobody feels compelled to design and make work that looks like somebody else. You know, there's a fierce um, independence or a designers are feeling comfortable with their own authenticity and that was something that sadly I can't say I possessed when I was a you know sort of a a younger sort of creative because you always had that cultural cringe that perhaps what you were to um uh, I guess um uh what you wanted to do from here was somehow not measure up, you know, in relationship to what was being produced um, internationally. But we don't seem to suffer from that anymore. So there is, I mean, and when you talk about threads, um, there's definite threads in relationship to, um, to materials. So whether we look at the work of the Australian designer Brodie Neal, who's based in London, and his extraordinary capacity to unearth really extraordinary narratives around the life cycle and origins of materials. And timber so, in particular. So his recoil table that was presented by Design Tasmania that was made um, of, of hydro wood timber. So this is timber, rare, rare species of Tasmanian timber that have been dredged up from Lake Pyman. But his ability to then um, produce veneer from all of this timber and then painstakingly coil it to create this large, t- you know, tabletop to speak of, you know, the the rings of a of of um, of a tree. But really, it's a metaphor for you know how we approach, um, you know, uh, I guess. 
the ecology, you know, and 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 uh, and you know, and and how the value that we place on natural and he, resources. And um, Brody, because he was raised in Tasmania, yeah. it's obviously that lovely link. To his childhood. No, totally. And, I mean, because the previous work of which, you know, I had the pleasure of of curating his um, presentation at the London Design Biennale several years ago, and he presented um, the gyro table. And this was, a once again, a big table that um, sort of had... Yeah, it sort of paid homage to, you know, the uh, specimen table of the 17th century where um, naturalists on their ventures around the world would collect stones or bones or and then they'd have them all, you know, very artfully arranged in this mosaic of table to speak of of all of the yeah. the the things that they've seen. And so what Brody did was really um, make a table full of you know ocean plastic pollution, and it presented a picture that is terribly troubling, mm-hmm. um, and uh, beautiful, beautiful table. But when you realise that you know it's a table made up of white and blue ocean plastic, mm-hmm. and the 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 um, the lack of red, orange, and yellow plastic um, uh, speaks to the fact that. That's what our fish is. That's what all of our marine life is consuming yeah. because they see it as food. Yeah. So this table is an illustration of of a of, of a uh, a problem that we have with ocean plastic pollution, but also speaking of literally the consumption of this horrible <laughs> material well, with um, our with our fish. So well, I think you know Brody's working of of, of materials is something that many of the designers at the design fair also similarly have this sensitivity and this desire to work material in an extremely conscious way to reveal stories of our time Mm. that in the future's past will as sort of hope to reveal something of what it was like to live in the Mm. in in at this point in time and what were some of the big issues that we were dealing with but of course, that's what all great design, whether it yeah. be decorative arts or mid-century design, there it's it's anyway. all telling stories about you know human creativity, but what it means to live in the world at any given time. I agree. Look, thanks so much for being on the program today, Simone. We Pleasure. could talk. We could, we could talk. For we hours. could talk furniture, <laughs> objects, hours. Unfortunately, we've got um, we're, um, we we could go, but. Um, I hope, you know, going forward, Mm. Simone, that, you know, people start to realise the importance of design Mm. and not look at price. You know, Mm. it's not about always buying. It's not a, it's not like walking into a department store and say, oh, I think I'll have that or I won't. It's a different, it's, it's a different way of looking. And Mm. I hope, I really hope sincerely Mm. that uh, by the end of my career, people have to have to start thinking about design as a form of art. It yeah. is as part of a whole package. Well, it, it enriches if we think about design as enriching our life aesthetically, but through our values, through the choices of the designers, whether it be through sustainable materials, whether it be about really understanding the needs of diverse communities and and um, and people with different needs. I mean, design is a very broad church and we need to start to understand that it 
there is a lot going on beyond mere appearance and the price tag is always relative. It is always relative, Stephen. (laughs) And it is always relative, but I think there's nothing wrong with questioning. Mm. I think the, the mistake often is that people aren't looking clearly and I think you're missing the point but look on that note look thanks so much for being on the program today you've been listening to Simone Lehman and this has been Stephen Crafty talking design at RMIT thanks so much for listening